It is good to be with you, and I'm sorry if taking my coat off might offend some of you. I've never been able to work with a coat on, okay? I just, and, um, and this is, you know, this is work and worship kind of thing. So I apologize. I know it's against your custom, but I was feeling incredibly insecure with a coat on, okay? So you're helping me feel at home. <laughs> um, but uh, my name is Chuck Colson, and for some of you, that might not mean anything. For others of you, you're wondering, am I his son? No. Uh, I'm not. I was born in a little town called Wadesboro, North Carolina, which is where the color purple was filmed. If you ever saw that movie, dirt roads, everything. So very simple place. And my parents had heard of this guy named Chuck Colson, but he was a fancy person who lived in Washington, D.C. And, uh, and he was uh, guilty of some things that nobody thought anything would come of it because he went to jail. And um, uh, Aubrey kind of stole my material. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah. God converted him, screwed up my life, and uh, so <laughs> here I am stuck with this name, <laughs> and, uh, and we go for it. But um, uh, it is good to be with you. I bring you greetings from the Church of the Ascension, which is uh, the church that I pastor in Arlington, and the Church of the Resurrection on Capitol Hill, and the Church of the Advent in Columbia Heights. We've gotten to hear a good bit about you guys from the early days until now, and so we've pray for you, and it's good for me just to have the chance to be here. I have to also apologize. It's been about four or five years since I preached on Sunday morning now. Uh, as you might know, we rent space on the evenings, and so I'm not sure what's about to happen. Um, and, uh, you know, I found myself last night going, wow, i got to preach in the morning. This is so strange. Um, but uh, it is really great just to be able to see you guys' space, to, uh, to be able to come back. Last time I was in Harrisonburg, this church didn't exist. Um, and that was just a couple of years ago. So, um, our passage for the morning is Matthew 2, and we're looking at this strange text about the coming of men from the east, and they arrive, and they're looking for one who's been born king of the Jews. We see this, and we remember it oftentimes in nativity scenes. You probably have multiple ones. At my house, we have fancy nativity scenes all the way down to Playmobil nativity scenes. Okay, nativity scenes everywhere. And nativity scenes uh, capture the story by having Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus in a manger, along with some shepherds, and then these three figures, these wise men. And so they capture actually something that happened probably over uh, perhaps several days, several weeks, or possibly even years. We don't know when the wise men actually arrived. The interesting thing about nativity scenes is that they become pretty controversial if you follow the news. You know that from California to Texas all the way to London, each year there are controversies about these nativity scenes. Perhaps the most humorous and controversial one I read about this year was in Madame Tussauds Wax Museum in London. There was a wax nativity created, and um, David Beckham and his, vi and his wife, Victoria, were Mary and Joseph. That's how it's set up. The three wise men are none other than... Um, then Tony Blair and George Bush, and then the Duke of, um, of Edinburgh, I believe. And the shepherds are Samuel Jackson and Hugh Grant. Uh, and so this created a huge row, I guess, as the British would say. People arguing just, is this sacrilegious, and, you know, and all kinds of conversations going on. And the thing that was interesting for me in just looking at, at this kind of blasphemous wax museum was just seeing that the nativity, the birth of Jesus, his coming into the world, the traveling of these three wise men, 
to uh, this small town outside of Jerusalem called Bethlehem continues to be a source of controversy today. In our passage, there are two responses that we learn were historical responses to the birth of Jesus. We see that Herod was threatened by this news. He was troubled. And all Israel, all Jerusalem was troubled with him. And that is one legitimate response that goes on to the announcement of the coming king of the Jews. It's troubling. And then we also find there was this other response that, we, that is indicated in the figures of the Magi, or, um, or some people call them the three kings or the three wise men, and that they were overjoyed, and that joy led to worship. And so the one response that doesn't seem to be sanctioned by Scripture is the response of indifference. That when we meet this story of a coming king of the Jews who has landed and pictured in oftentimes in our nativity scenes, is that there, it forces a response. It creates a response within us. That we're either to be troubled and threatened by it, or we're to respond with joy and worship. Now obviously, Matthew, as a committed Christian, is going to encourage us as he writes his gospel to respond in joy with worship. And it's actually a pretty big theme in the passage. I don't know if you noticed, but three times Matthew uses the word worship. He is encouraging worship. And it comes into play particularly with the wise men. Where the wise men arrive, they see the child Jesus with his mother Mary, and then they bow down and worship him. They worship Jesus. And so three times he's, he's used the word worship, and it culminates there, instructing us what it is to worship. And just in, in Matthew's broader plan, when he writes his gospel, this is an important theme. Because the book begins with this scene of worship in Matthew chapter 2. And then it's ironic because the book also ends with a scene of worship. Where Jesus' disciples go seeking after him. Just like these magi had gone seeking after Jesus. His disciples go seeking after him in Matthew 28 verse 17. And they seek him to Gal in Galilee. And then what happens? They bow down and worship him once again. Okay? And so there's something very central to the Christian life about responding to Jesus in worship. And so there's a couple things for us just to parse out this morning about worship. And the first is a really simple question, and I don't mean to, uh, to patronize you in any way. But it's the simple question of what is worship then? If that is so central to the Christian life, if Matthew put it at the front and at the back of his gospel, if he bookends his gospel with that, and he's saying that central to the Christian life is worship, then we need to understand what it is. And so read with me again in verses 10 and 11. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now through the Magi, what we see here is that worship is a response to encountering Christ and all that God promises uh, to do through him. That that is what worship is. It's a response to encountering Jesus. Because for us to understand this 
particular story of these three wise men coming to Bethlehem. It can seem something like a, a sweet, kind of idyllic, romantic story. But for Matthew, it actually had specific purpose. Matthew saw that this arrival of these three men from the east, probably from the, the city of Babylon, where there was significant Jewish influence, these three men arriving from the east, that Isaiah 60, verse 9, and Psalm 72 were coming to fulfillment. That Israel's scripture had spoken of the day where there would be a king in Israel, and God's peace and justice would be brought to the nations of the earth. And the nations of the earth would come streaming to Israel. And what were they going to bring? Gifts. The wealth of the nations was to be brought to this one who was born king of the Jews. And so it wasn't just a mistake that these three men happened to arrive. No, this is recorded for us and it's a part of our nativity scenes because Matthew thought that this was a momentous occasion where God's plan, His promises were coming to fruition, signaling that this one who's been born in such humility, who's laying in a manger, who's a humble child, is also yet the king. And so to worship is to respond to encountering this Jesus, is to respond to encountering the promises of what God is doing in Jesus for the sake of the world. Because, see, this king was a Jewish king, but he wasn't just born for the sake of the Jews. The idea was that through Israel, God was going to bless the world and to renew the world and to raise it, what it to what it was always intended to be. And so the wise men are meeting this promise. They're meeting this moment of fruition and fulfillment, and they worship. Now, what's important for us is to consider what drove them to worship. It wasn't the great coffee. <laughs> it wasn't that the parking was convenient. They didn't come to worship. Um, they didn't come to worship uh, to sit as an audience. They didn't come to worship primarily because of the sermon. No, they came to worship simply as a response to, in, to encounter Christ and to respond to all that God is promising to do in and through him. And so, friends, it's very simple, but that's what worship is to be for us, is simply responding to meeting Christ. Now, several weeks ago, I had the opportunity to, to share at lunch with a seminary friend who I had not seen in probably close to a decade. And, um, and we shared the typical niceties. How's your family? How old are your children now? And we did all the catching up. And then kind of bursting out of him came this question, how did you become an Anglican priest? <laughs> because this was not my background or tradition. How did this happen? How did you go from our seminary to where you are today? And so I always have to normalize the situation. It happens pretty often. Um, and Aubrey probably has many stories <laughs> along these same lines, probably worse. You came out of the Baptist tradition, didn't you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just migrated down from Scotland. I had a Presbyterian background. Uh, so <laughs> I don't know what you did. <laughs> um, and so the answer for my friend, though, lies exactly in this issue of worship. 
of what drew me into the Anglican tradition was precisely this idea of encountering Christ in worship and responding to him. Because I found a beauty in the way that the liturgy was, uh, was designed and laid out in tra the traditions of the church, where I was brought into the presence of Christ. Hearing his word, being brought and sometimes dragged into confession, being assured of my forgiveness, of hearing his word again, of then coming to a table after going to prayers, of encountering Jesus in all the ways that God has ordained for us to meet him now by his spirit. And that in meeting him, I was also given chance to respond. Songs that were sung in response to these encounters of being assured of his grace, of meeting him, of being challenged by him. And friends, that is the beauty of Anglican tradition. True worship happens in other traditions of the church as well. But we have a wonderful tool and a wonderful resource in front of us that enables us to worship in this genuine way where we're coming not because of just the sermon, where we're coming not just because the music is good, despite Ernie's skill with the ukulele or whatever that thing is. <laughs> what was that? Okay. <laughs> you know, and, and we're coming because it's Christ that we're going to meet that he will be present when we assemble together in his name. And friends, that's what real worship is, is encountering him and responding to him. Now, one of the other things we see is not only that, um, that worship is responding to an encounter with Jesus, but also we see some particular parts of worship. In fact, one in this passage, one strong component of worship and we find this at the end of verse 11, where it says, Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, it sounds like in your small groups you did some specific work this week on the, on the types of gifts. Am I right? All right, this feels like a middle school dance. You've got to answer me. Uh, <laughs> I heard somebody reference something to it before the service. But, um, and, and that's not going to be quite the focus. Um, my focus this morning because these gifts are interesting, you know, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and they probably symbolize things in and of themselves. But I want to just focus for a second on the actual giving of gifts in the ancient world. And when people of prominence and importance brought gifts, it was an act of submission and alliance making. Simply think of kings making treaties with one another. What was given? Normally a daughter. You know, perhaps other riches. We find examples of it in the Bible. And so here you have an alliance and an act of submission being made by these men from the East. And friends, this is the particular component of worship that we have to focus on, is that in worship we bring ourselves under the submission we yield to our Lord Jesus. We yield ourselves completely to him in light of his grace, in light of his promises, in light of the fact of everything God has given us in Jesus. We yield ourselves to him. And so they came bringing these elaborate gifts. And so we yield in corporate worship in all kinds of ways. We yield by confessing our sins. We yield by bringing our offerings. We yield by offering a sacrifice of thanksgiving with our songs. And so we come encountering him 
in that way, submitting ourselves to him. Now, it's interesting because when they give their gifts and they yield themselves in obedience to Jesus, they are then faced with a question, though. What had Herod asked them to do? He had asked them to return. Return to him so he could find out where the child was and that he, too, could go and worship. Now, we know that Herod had other designs. And the wise men were warned in a dream. Something supernatural happened. They were warned in a dream not to return to Herod. And so they had an enormous question before them. Should they return to Herod, who was a powerful and violent man? He was known to be irrational. He killed his own wife and two of his favorite sons just around this time. And so to defy Herod's request would be to put yourself in danger. Or should they return home by another way, knowing that Herod was going to try to cause harm to this one whom they had sought out to to worship? And friends, this is the crisis that meets us every week when you leave this place. Are you going to remain loyal? Are you going to be submitted? Are you going to yield to this Jesus whom you've just encountered and gathered in his presence? Or are we going to yield to the other powerful forces and factors in our life? Because we all have them. We all have things that vie for our attention, rivals to the authority of Jesus in our life. And we're all prone to be more scared of them, to be fearful of them, rather than to joyfully serve our Lord Jesus. And that was the question in front of these wise men. Would they be scared of Herod and respond in obedience to him? Or would they be joyful and continue on their way and be loyal to our Lord Jesus? And so, friends, how does it work out for you? What does that look like? What are the things that you might fear more than our Lord Jesus? What are the things that you are prone to serve other than him? And working that out and being aware of those things is perhaps one of the most important tasks of the Christian life. To pretend they don't exist is foolishness. To act like there are not rivals is probably the most foolish thing that we can do as a Christian. But to acknowledge them, to understand them, to understand why it is that we fear them, what we're trying to gain from them, that that's the path to Christian maturity. And then to set them aside and to continue by the grace of God to yield to our Lord Jesus. That's the true response of worship. And so this is what worship does. It's it's a response to what God is doing in Christ. It leads to a yieldedness in our lives. But in reflecting on this, I also know that as a Christian personally, and also in a room full of other Christians, that worship is still a struggle for all of us. You've all made it a priority. It's something very important to your week. It sets the tone for who you are. But yet when we come in and encounter our Lord Jesus, so often our worship is less than what we desire it to be. Isn't it true? Isn't it so easy just to fall flat? We don't like to talk about these things, but I'm a guest preacher, okay? Uh, It's all right. (laughs) But so often we leave and just say, what was that? 
You know? Did I encounter God? Am I, am I changed? You know, the coffee was kind of bad, and the child care was ratty this week, you know? Kids were loud. Um, these, these, these are things that go on in my church, at least. Um, <laughs> and friends, so how do we renew ourselves? How do we find joy like the joy that's described in the Magi when they saw the star? Listen to the verse again. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It literally says something like they joyed a great joy, okay? There there was some exuberance going on. Now, joy looks like different things for different folks, okay? So I'm not going to try to prescribe something to you. But how do you maintain some type of serious, fervent renewal in encountering our Lord Jesus and regularly doing so? It involves something that Matthew later develops, where he used some of, the, some of the same vocabulary. It's actually found in chapter 13. You can turn there if you like. It's in verse 48. Excuse me, in 44. And this is what Matthew says. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Okay, so a man owns possessions. He has a life. But then he recognizes something of infinite value and worth before him. The kingdom of God that's been brought in this king of the Jews. And so what does he do when he recognizes the value? He liquidates. He sells off. In order to do what? To buy to buy this kingdom of God. Now, of course, we, we don't technically purchase, but he's investing himself. He's buying into the kingdom of God. He's saying, this is where my true treasure lies. And why does he do it? Matthew says, for joy. For joy over it, he does it. And friends, so I think one of the, the vital dynamics for us when it comes to renewing our worship is to simply reflect upon the gospel, the kingdom of God, all that God gives us, all that God is doing to renew the world through our Lord Jesus, the momentousness of his promise, the largeness of it, everything that he's going to do, including the forgiveness of our sins and the raising of the dead, that that is the field that we look on and have joy over. That is what God gives us in Jesus. And it's in meditating upon this. It's in remaining centered upon this, that it keeps out the rivals, that allows us to joy a great joy, because this is something far more valuable than anything else the world has to offer. It's what allows us to conquer the fear of the rivals. It's what allows us, like the Magi, to say no to Herod, to all the different things. It's allowing this joy to become part of and central to our lives. Now, my son, my oldest son, when he was born, he's quite lean now, but he was an enormously large baby. Okay? He was just filled with blubber. Uh, and, um, and we didn't quite know how this happened, but it was always entertaining at bath time. I was a new dad, and so I had this fancy tub that we would put on the side of the sink. We've long since forsaken these things now. Uh, far more pragmatic about him. We fill it up with water, and I remember the first bath I prepared for him. Filled it up with water. Then I I took his big naked self, 
and, uh, and put him over this tub and dropped him in. And what happened? Well, he was so big, he displaced tons of water. And so now I have a fountain, you know, running over the kitchen sink all onto the floor and washing this tremendous mess I've made. And guys, it is that displacement that has to happen in our lives. And that's what the gospel does. It causes us to overflow with joy. It's displacing the old rivals. It's displacing the things that distract us. It's displacing the things we fear. And that's the work the gospel does. And that's what allows us to truly worship. That's what lets us come into God's presence with joy and thanksgiving. So let's pray.